So, good evening, Sangha. Can you all hear me? So, I was just noticing how interesting it is that for this practice period, it, everyone expects something different. Because usually we come in and we sit on our cushions and we get into our meditative pose and we sit, but I noticed everyone out there was like waiting for some entertainment. <laughs> it's interesting. So here it is. <laughs> uh, tonight uh, I'm going to talk about something I mentioned uh, briefly in my first talk, and that was uh, this one sutta called the Vipalasa Sutta. It's about, uh, and vipalasa means distortions, distortions of the mind. And this has been a very useful sutta for me because I can pretty much say everything I think is a distortion of reality. Um, I've actually heard Joseph say that if we're not seeing the three characteristics and wherever we're looking, that our minds are deluded. I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> are you seeing the truth of unsatisfactoriness and the truth of impermanence and the truth of anatta or selflessness in everything? I also uh, once heard Biko Analayo say that Someone asked him what his practice was. I thought that was an excellent question. What's your practice like, Bhikkhu? And he said, when I'm not on retreat, I do uh, metta practice because benevolence is very important. And he said, when I'm on retreat, I look for the three characteristics. I thought that was really brilliant instructions. So tonight I'm going to talk about the Vipalasa Sutta. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, three levels of distortions of the mind. And then there is four types of distortions that can manifest in a million different thoughts and actions and, you know, uh, karma of body, speech, and mind. And then I'm going to just for a minute consider how it, might, how it might manifest in intensive retreat practice and then talk about what we can do about them. What is a wise approach to, to letting go of distorted, distorted perceptions, distorted thoughts, and distorted views. So here is the sutta. These four, O yogis, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view. Sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure and suffering, assuming self where there's no self, sensing the unlovely as lovely, gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceived with distorted minds, bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. There, there are beings that go on flowing, 
going again from birth to death. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where there is suffering, non-self in what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So this teaching on the vipalasas or distortions of perceptions, thought, and view is very connected to the Buddhist teachings on avijja, on ignorance. The distortions are fundamental to how we understand ignorance or delusion. Bhikkhu Bodhi had this uh, interesting take on the relationship of um, avijja uh, or ignorance, uh, its relationship to delusion or moha. He said that in the suttas where the Buddha is talking about how delusion manifests psychologically, he uses the term uh, moha, that moha is a delusion. It's like a psychological element of uh, our perception, thought, and view. And when the Buddha is talking about the causes of samsara, the causes of the deep suffering, and you know, the human and sentient being conditioned, he uses the term avijja or ignorance. But they're actually the same. It's the same force that shows up either as a psychological construct or how we understand it as really the cause of suffering. So there are three levels of uh, vipalasa or three levels of distorted thinking. The first level well, what does vipalasa mean? You know, I love it the way the uh, Pali scholars will take, they will take and you know cut up a word into its composite parts, and there'll be a definition of each of the little parts of it. And I guess in uh, the term vipalasa, it means really three things. It means to take something up, you know, to take it up, to turn it around, kind of like turn it around like this, and then to throw it back down. I guess that's one uh, image or one um, analogy of how we, how we work with mental objects. But what does vipalasa mean? It means hallucination. That's one term. Halluc- hallucination, delusion. Actually, some, uh, some translations call it a perversion, a perversion of mind. Personally, my favorite... Uh, Definition of it right now is a lie, just a lie. It's when I'm lying to myself or when delusion is lying to understanding. So the first level of vipalasa is sanya vipalasa or distortions of perception. 
And this is when we, uh, at the level of perceiving things, um, you know, when we maybe are looking at some mental object in our mind or maybe walking around the uh, meditation hall or walking around this beautiful compound and we just recognize things. And um, oftentimes we are not seeing things very clearly. You know, we might see something in our own mind and misperceive what it is. We might reify it and make it absolutely solid. You know, have a, uh, rather than understanding it as a fabrication in this moment of, you know, the causes and conditions that found its way onto the cushion or to the chair and this particular moment of unfolding, we, we attach some solid, uh, some solid meaning to it. So, and we think that we know what it is. We, we attach a conceptual label to it uh, and make it a solid thing and think we know what it is. Um, and in the Buddhist psychology, we know that there are uh, six areas of perception that uh, are subject to vipalasas or um, delusion, hallucination. There's perception of forms or materiality, perceptions of sounds, perceptions of smell, of taste, of bodily contact, and then perception of the mental objects that we identify as they cross our uh, consciousness door or our awareness door. And we tend to you know, often misperceive what's going on. Uh, the one good ex- uh, example of this that's in the suttas actually is a farmer who is uh, plowing his field and he's growing some type of crop. And um, he knows that there are birds and animals and deer that come in and, you know, want to eat up his crops. And so what he'll do is he'll create a scarecrow. You know, he'll stuff a... Uh, some fabric in the shape of a person and put it out into the field. And the deer and birds will uh, misperceive this, uh, you know, bunch of of straw for a person and they, they won't disturb the field. That's one example of a sanya vipalasa or distortion of perception. Then when we have these uh, distortions of perceptions, what happens is uh, we see something and then we start thinking about it. And this is a distortion of thought, uh, citta uh, vipalasa. And that's uh, the next higher level of mental processing. Uh, We can see something and we can find ourselves contemplating it, particularly if we misperceive it. And, you know, we start a pretty prolific thinking process and this turns into something that I'm sure many of you are totally not aware of, something called papancha. (laughs) Mental proliferations. Has anybody had any of that? Papancha. 
So I like this little, this little quote. Who's on your list? Boss, coworker, spouse, roommate, mother, father, child. Who are the people that, that you really dislike and wish would simply go away? Be grateful to them. They're your own special gurus, showing up right on time to keep you honest. It's the troublemakers in your life who cause you to see that things, to see that you've shut down, that you're armored yourself, that you've hidden your head in the sand. If you don't get angry at them, if you don't get fed up with them, you would never be able to cultivate patience. If you didn't envy them, if you weren't jealous of them, you would never think to stretch beyond your mean-spiritedness and try to rejoice in their good fortune. If you never met your match, you might think that you're better than everybody else and arrogantly criticize their neurotic behavior rather than do something about your own. And I think that, I'm sure that that's a place that we all get in intensive practice. Not always, but we can see those things that we get reactive to. You know, those misperceptions about the people in our lives who, you know, maybe always cause us suffering or so we think are the cause of our suffering or maybe we have more mixed uh, responses to or, the, or we feel are the source of our suffering and our joy and people we think should always be the source of joy for us. And uh, that's a very valuable place to be when we see our distortions of thought, when we can uh, look more closely at our papancha, at how it tells us what we expect out of people, you know? what we expect, what we think we should be able to expect. So in our mind, this, I, this uh, process that we have of mental proliferation, it's not personal. It is a tendency of our mind. It's what happens to all humans particularly humans who don't uh, try to do purification and cultivation. Uh, Humans without some form of looking more closely at what's going on in their heart-mind. They lead to various concepts. Um, There are things that we we take delight in, we hang on to, things that we uh, believe deeply to be true. And they're erroneous concepts. And when we believe them, we end up with lust and aversion and views and doubt and conceit and desire for being and ignorance. They are the mental habit patterns or these thoughts show up as uh, the mental habit patterns that we have. And, you know, in that moment, they give us an opportunity to see them clearly. You know, with strong mindfulness, we can see them. You know, what are, these, what are the outcomes of these unwholesome states? They, um, they lead us to take up weapons and quarrels and brawls and disputes and recriminations. 
they're the cause of, you know, all of our bad actions and body, speech, and mind towards ourselves and towards others. So right now, what is a common mental proliferation that we would have either two months or a month into practice, an intensive practice? What are some of the common vipalasas we might have? Uh, vipalasas, uh, chitta vipalasas, or vipalasas of thoughts. I remember doing a long retreat. During a long retreat, I tend to make up stories about the past or think that I can uh, give a different frame of the past. In fact, just the other day, I was sitting right over here and I was thinking about, actually, about Aaron. And uh, I've known Aaron now for, I think it's four years. Uh, but her and I actually practiced at the same place at Kelly Place in, uh, in um, southern Colorado, in Durango, Colorado. I lived there for a year. And I had this memory in my mind that I was sitting next to a young woman who told me she was originally from North Dakota. And that would have been Aaron, because Aaron is from North Dakota. And I do a fair amount of work in North Dakota, so that would have been of interest to me. And so I've actually known Aaron for 20 years and not four years. <laughs> and I actually just made up that memory in my mind. <laughs> and when I told it to Aaron, she almost made it up too. She goes, you know, that could have happened. <laughs> So, you know, we tend to do that with so many things that we can remember from the past. You know, uh, modern psychology, Western psychology has a lot about how we hardly remember anything accurately. You know, it's always, um, it's always um, tainted by if we feel very positively about something or feel very negatively about something or don't even have an opinion. And it's often tainted by how we're feeling in this moment. If we're feeling uh, magnanimous and generous and loving, you know, we can experience, we all have a memory about the past and infuse it with those characteristics. Or if we're feeling, um, you know, tied and contracted and have a lot of ill will or greed in the mind or one of the other hindrances, it'll totally influence how we think about the past. And I know I've heard yogis say, you know, look at what they're thinking, what their ruminations are, what the papancha is and say, oh my gosh, I'm making all of it up. I don't know if any of you have had that experience here with strong mindfulness just to see how much past ruminations we're just totally making up. And then what about the future? I'm sure none of you are thinking about what it's going to be like in two weeks. So one of the tendencies when we're getting to this place in the retreat is to think about what the future holds for us. You know, what we're going to say to our friends about this great experience, this great retreat. 
this very meaningful event in our lives, how it's going to define us for the rest of our lives. I was the person who went on the three-month or six-week retreat. And what that means, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm this way and I'm that way. Or maybe you had a very difficult time. I'm a person who has a lot of mental hang-ups and uh, really shouldn't expose myself to my thoughts like that. I've actually read that in some recent uh, articles. (laughs) We shouldn't expose ourselves to our minds. It's kind of dangerous. (laughs) So right now we're proliferating about the past and the future and proliferating about the present. All of thoughts, all of these thoughts we have Um, about ourselves and about our fellow yogis and about the teachers and about the staff and about Western Theravadan Buddhism, about mindfulness. And then the third level of distortion is dita vipalasa or distortion of view. And this is the deepest and most difficult a type of uh, hallucination to undo. Uh, This is when we become so convinced of the truth of something that no matter what evidence we have of any other, um, you know, of the, you know, erroneous nature of what our beliefs are, it's very hard for us to to let go of. I was thinking about, uh, actually was working again with Aaron to think about what are some of the distortions of view that are pretty predominant in our culture right now. And she really liked the disbelief in climate change. There's a lot of science about humans' impact on the human environment or the environment for all of us on the planet. There's a lot of evidence about it. And some people just refuse to believe it. And things like racism and sexism, people just have such deep-seated beliefs in that. In fact, Brian reminded me the other day, I, was, uh, I got upgraded to first class on Alaska Airlines and I sat next to this really nice guy. <laughs> And he was uh, flying from Alaska to D.C. and I was flying from Seattle to D.C. and there was a stopover that I got on the plane. And uh, he was from Alaska. And Alaska, you may or may not know, has the highest proportion of indigenous people in the United States. It has like 16 or 18 percent Alaska Native and other indigenous people. And I asked him, I said, oh, how great, you live in Alaska. There's so many indigenous people there. That must be really nice for you. And he said, oh, yeah, those Indians, boy, they really have drinking problems. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it was funny. I must have been in a really good mood because nothing he said was really getting me reactive. (laughs) It wasn't. And because I think, to be honest, he was flirting with me a little bit. (laughs) And he didn't really care, and he didn't even realize, I think, some of, the he, some of the things that he said would, you know, be offensive to some people. 
So I asked him, I said, well, tell me more about that. What is it like to be, you know, an Anglo, per, uh, Anglo person who lives in Alaska, you know, that is still indigenous land and you live there? And, uh, you know, he just started telling me all his beliefs about uh, how lucky it was that America took over Alaska and, you know, people had uh, access to, you know, work and to wage labor and to Christianity and things like that. And, you know, it, what was interesting for me, though, was that I wasn't reactive at all. I just found it fascinating. So I was actually taking notes. I said, tell me more about this. <laughs> I was on my way to actually give a talk in D.C. about uh, epistemologies, about n native ways of knowing and Western ways of knowing. And I thought, I'm going to... So I thought that I would use this interaction in my talk. So I actually took a picture of us both together. <laughs> And I put it in my PowerPoint of, you know, both of us smiling and waving. <laughs> and, you know, I gave some examples of his, uh, his Dita Vipa losses. <laughs> and I'm sure I had many of my own Dita Vipa losses at that time as well. It was just not one way. But... Um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that we can open to these things and actually have a sense of humor about it. Just realize that so many of the ways that we believe, some of the very deep structures of how we uh, make up our own identities and the identities of others, uh, beliefs that we have about the economy, about the appropriateness of this type of economic system or that kind of economic system, uh, the types of authority we have, we live in uh, culturally. I mean, I look at something like um, uh, gay LGBTQ marriage. Oh my gosh, I am so happy. But, you know, that we have gay marriage now. Well, at least in my state, in Washington state. And even 10 years ago, for some people, that was really unheard of. So, you know, we probably had a vipalasa about, you know, who, what marriage is and who should be married. I, you know, some of you might not agree with that, and I respect that. I, I don't mean to be saying that that's not a vipalasa, but <clears throat> I think more and more uh, non-harming and just allowing what people need to be happy is appropriate. Um, control of gender and sexuality is uh, Dita Vipalasa. Control of subjectivity and knowledge. Um, there's this thing called universalizing our subjectivity. Assuming that everyone in the world should think the way that we do or does think the way that we do. You know, I do a lot of research and I have, uh, right now I have this pretty huge data set of uh, over 2,000 tribal college and university students. And I know that I cannot sit in Seattle and determine what that means, what any of that data means. So I invited my partners to help me figure out what this means, you know, as a way of uh, privileging other ways of knowing and of, you know, dismantling a uh, very prevalent view of you know, how we understand each other. So those are the three levels of vipalasa. 
And there's also uh, four specific vipalasas. The, there's four distortions that we uh, all have that I think manifest in a thousand different ways. And we can think about how these might manifest as we um, are in such a deep place of our meditation practice. The first, and you know, as the sutta says, it's seeing the changing as unchanging. Seeing the changing as unchanging. Seeing the unsatisfactory as satisfactory. Seeing the non-self as self. And then seeing the unlovely as lovely. How does that show up for us right now? And you know, getting back to uh, the Buddha's pedagogical style or how he taught, it was all about what was happening in this moment, right? It was how, do, how does it apply to what's happening right now? I just love that about him. How, did, how does it apply to uprooting suffering and uprooting delusion and avijja right now? Uprooting ignorance and delusion. So how does that manifest? One way it does is when we, something happens when we're either on the cushion or doing walking meditation. Maybe we're struggling with something and we might have the thought, this is the way it will be forever. Maybe it's a relationship we have with some people in our lives Maybe it's a thought we have about ourselves. This is the way it will be forever. We don't see clearly the changing nature of things. The second vipalasa or distortion is, in order for this to be okay, it should be pleasant. That's one way that the vipalasa of uh, dukkha or satisfactoriness manifests. In order for this sit to be a good sit, I should be in deep jhana and very blissful. Or I should have no hindrances and be able to spot the seven factors of awakening. Whatever it is that we think is a good sit or a right sit, you know, that's the misconception or the delusion we bring to interpret our experience in the moment, is to think that it needs to be pleasant or to think that it will be ultimately satisfying. And then a really very deep one is, I am making this experience happen or this experience is happening to me. 
we totally uh, don't understand the huge implications of fabrication in the moment, of karma and causes and conditions, how they're coming together based on external triggers, based on what's happening with us in the moment, how much purification we've done, how strong our mindfulness is to catch even the subtlest of the subtlest uh, defilements in our minds or, you know, to be happy and uh, have our mind gladdened by the positive qualities we see in our mind. And, you know, thinking that we're making this happen and this is happening to us, taking it all very personally, having it be a personal experience. And then taking the, taking as lovely the unlovely. And that I think we can reflect just how much we believe that, you know, the right relationship, the right person, the right job, the right clothes, the right cooking pots, (laughs) the right food, the right anything that is just right, the most lovely, the most beautiful, um, either activities that we engage in or um, activities we engage in or the um, things that we accumulate somehow uh, will provide us with some satisfaction and are as beautiful as we perceive them in, in the moment when they're really not. Have you ever had a relationship that just brought you happiness? You laugh (laughs) because you're thinking, that just has never happened for me. (laughs) And, you know, these delusions are at the root of our attachment. <laughs> I just thought turning off the mic was going to make me happy. <laughs> we become attached because we forget the changing nature of things. We expect this first sip of tea to be exactly how we experience the rest of the tea, right? the first bite of that chocolate brownie to be how we experience the rest of that brownie. Not realizing that our experience of this very thing in this moment is changing as we consume it. We become attached because we don't see the basic unsatisfactoriness of, of all conditioned things, uh, of us, of our relationships, of the things that we accumulate of our uh, ego clinging, of our identities. We become attached because we claim ownership, eyeing and myeing of experience. You know, those three types of tanha, of clinging. Uh, This is mine. This belongs to me. This I am. I am this. This is my identity and that is my identity. And this is myself. 
and we become attached because we see things as beautiful that are not beautiful. So what are some of the common um, misperceptions? I'm taking this from psychology, but these are definitely part of what the Buddha taught of ways of seeing, uh, of misperceptions. And this is what psychology tells us, Western psychology tells us are uh, common misperceptions. One, of course, I'm sure none of you have had this, it's the overgeneralization. You know, and we can have overgeneralizations about our past and about our future. For example, seeing a single negative event as a pattern, a never-ending pattern, or defeat, or even seeing a single positive situation as, and, you know, assuming that that was our entire past and that will be our entire future. I think it's easy to see how we overgeneralize. Uh, This is one that's very popular in the Western psychological mindfulness arena, and that is mental filtering. And that's something that um, is important, I think, for us to be aware of in intensive practice like this. With strong mindfulness, you can see this tendency, and we can really train our minds not to do this. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, that evolutionary psychological tendency to just see the negative. You know, we'll sit, we'll have one sitting or one walking meditation or watch our continuity during the day. And, you know, maybe in the evening before we rest, we'll go over the day and remember one or two maybe difficult sits and generalize that to our entire retreat experience. So we dwell on single negative details and we let that color all of our reality. We disqualify the positive or don't even, or don't even recognize the positive. And sometimes we even reject positive experiences to sustain or to justify our negative beliefs. I mean, we could just uh, think about being here for six weeks or three months, and I mean, that's one of the most wholesome things anyone could do anywhere, and uh, an incredibly positive experience. And we could delight in our goodness. In fact, let's all delight in our goodness right now for doing this. I'm here for six weeks, too. Mm. This is a good thing. So let's try to do that. Let's try to really notice all the wonderful things when they happen. Another is jumping to conclusions. Making negative conclusions not supported by facts. I think we do this a lot about our fellow yogis, about what's going on, you know, any interactions maybe we have with teachers, any many interactions we're having with staff, or even, you know, projections into the future. We might have had, you know, one interaction and think that that's exactly how it's going to be in the future. I love this one, mind reading. We can't even read our own minds. 
and we're reading everybody else's, right? We don't even, un- I mean, it's difficult for us to see even the changing nature of one minute greed, the next minute generosity and love and compassion, and then aversion and doubt and conceit. You know, it's hard for us to see all of that in our own minds clearly, you know, as quickly as it's changing and, and as subtle as they get. But we'll attribute, uh, you know, we'll attribute um, motivations and thoughts and feelings to everyone around us. So mind reading, that's a common perceptual distortion. (laughs) And then fortune telling. Well, I too do that a lot. (laughs) I actually do fortune telling a lot. Anticipating and experiencing uh, something as an established fact uh, and thinking that we know what something means. Magnification, exaggerating the importance of things. Do we ever do that? Like, boy, that last sit was a defining sit for my entire time here at IMS. (laughs) That's what I'm going to remember. That was the most important thing. Or that small miscommunication I had with my teacher, that just tells everything about the teaching teams at IMS. Or that particular dinner that I had that got me a little bit gassy. This food is all gassy. (laughs) And that is, it's impossible to get enlightened when you have gas. (laughs) That might be an exaggeration. Magnification exaggerating, uh, well, that's uh, magnification. Minimization, inappropriately reducing the value of things or qualities of others. Minimization. Well, that person doesn't really count because they're probably here on scholarship. Or that staff person is here to make sure that I'm comfortable. Emotional reasoning. And that's just assuming negative emotions reflect the way things really are. Shoulds and should nots, how we expect things should be. Should statements. You know, again, in order for this to be a good sit, it should look like this, I should do this, and then that should happen. Or in order for this practice period to be good, You know, I should have strong mindfulness and perfect continuity and see the three characteristics in every object of mind. And then personalization. I love this one. Seeing yourself as the cause for every event, even though you have absolutely no control over it. What does that look like when we're on retreat? Spiritually, these misperceptions misplace the goal and confuses the goal of our practice. But there is a remedy. There is a remedy to, 
to distortions of mind, distortions of the heart. And that remedy is right view. And the Buddha taught that there are two conditions for the arising of right view. And one is the voice of another, the teachings, Dhamma teachings. And the second is wise attention. And that's exactly what we're all practicing. Wise attention. Sati Sampajanya. We have both of these things. Both of the necessary elements to uproot and to see clearly and to get rid of vipalasas. With mindfulness, we recognize concepts, we recognize perceptions for what they are, we recognize thoughts for what they are, and we recognize views for what they are. That when they're wrong, when we're not seeing the three characteristics, that they're arising purely from the mind's tendency to proliferate. And that it's not personal that this is what the mind does. This is what the heart does. We understand them not to be the truth and we understand that the practice we're doing is tending this mind-heart garden. You know, uh, really seeing clearly what is wholesome and what will lead to happiness and what is unwholesome and what will lead to suffering. And we're working at that Um, you know, purifying of the negative and um, cultivation of the wholesome and and the useful. Well, that was a lot of time. So let's think for a minute how, how we can work with vipalasas to help us stay connected to our practice. So what are some of the things that are knocking people or uh, knocking them maybe into the future or into the past or reducing their amount of ardency, both ardency and relaxation in the moment? So you might just reflect on the vipalasas. uh, As uh, Bhikkhu Analayo said on retreat, you know, where are there people losses in the mind. Where are we seeing the impermanent as permanent? Where are we seeing the, where are we grasping and attached to getting satisfaction from things that will never give us satisfaction? And where are we constructing things as I, mine, and self when there really isn't any? Here's a little quote about the detox period. When you refrain from habitual thoughts and behavior, the uncomfortable feelings will still be there. They don't magically disappear. Over the years, I've come to call resting with the discomfort the detox period, because when you don't act on your habitual patterns, it's like giving up an addiction. 
You're left with the feelings you were trying to escape. The practice is to make a wholehearted relationship with that. Here's two more little quotes that I really like. Suffering is universal. This reflection might help us um, to uproot the sense of self. Not only are our not only are our adverse experiences beneficial for our own path, but they are the best way for us to connect with others. Suffering is a universal experience. This is why the Buddha chose suffering as the first topic of his teachings. So when we connect with our own suffering, we can also recall that many beings all over the world are having similar experiences. This helps us develop understanding, love, and compassion for others. I think we don't even have to think about the world. We can think about our our, uh, sangha right in this room. There's probably very few things any of us have experienced that all of us are not experiencing. And then steadfastness. So this is a quote for daily practice, but how much more wonderful is it that we have been engaging in this intensive practice? Steadfastness, this is what we want to call call up. May steadfastness arise in all of us. We're encouraged to meditate every day, even for a short time, in order to cultivate steadfastness with ourselves. We sit under all kinds of circumstances, whether we are feeling healthy or sick, whether we are in a good mood or depressed, whether we feel our meditation is going well or is completely falling apart. As we continue to sit, we see that meditation isn't about getting it right or attaining some ideal state. It's about being able to stay present with ourselves. It becomes increasingly clear that we won't be free of self-destructive patterns unless we develop a compassionate understanding of what they are. A compassionate understanding of our distortions of the mind. Let's sit for a minute. May all beings see clearly into distortions of perception, distortions of thought, and distortions of view. May wisdom and truth arise. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.